Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I'm joined by Kevin R.C. Gutzman. Kevin is a New York Times bestselling author of five books, including Thomas Jefferson, Revolutionary, A Radical Struggle to Remake America. He's got a new book coming out called The Jeffersonians, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. And he's also a professor and former chairman in the Department of History at Western Connecticut State University, a faculty member at LibertyClassroom.com. He holds a bachelor's degree with honors and with special honors in history, a master of public affairs degree, and a law degree from the University of Texas at Austin, as well as an MA and a PhD in American history from the University of Virginia. Kevin, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Tom. Okay, so we have the Biden administration's vaccine mandate going into effect on January 4th. And as everyone knows, this is not a law passed by Congress. This is going to be a regulation issued by OSHA, the federal agency that's concerned with workplace safety. And since something like this is so unprecedented, I think it's worth asking a few fundamental questions. And the first one concerns the existence of OSHA itself. Now, I know it's been around for 50 years, and I'm sure it's been challenged in court. And I assume that somehow or other, uh, the courts have discovered that this falls under the federal government's power to regulate interstate commerce. So that's my first question is, how can anything that happens in a specific workplace be interstate commerce? I mean, you drive to work, you work your eight-hour shift, you drive home, you've never crossed the state line, you haven't even left the address of your employer. So I don't understand how that can possibly be interstate commerce. And the second question, if the legislative power is delegated exclusively to Congress, how can an executive branch agency write what amounts to legislation? I mean, these rules are enforceable. I don't understand what the difference between them and a law that's supposed to be passed by Congress would be. So the second question is, how can the Biden administration do this without Congress? Uh, well, uh, a lawyer can make interstate commerce of it. Let's put it that way. 
So what's happened over time is that at least our ruling elite has moved away from the idea that government should be primarily at the local and state level to the idea that the government is, first of all, federal or really national. And that means that we've had a series of federal court cases in which people have raised challenges like one with this argument behind it. Um, And the Supreme Court ultimately has said that Congress can legislate on more or less anything it wants, as long as it's not expressly prohibited to legislate about it by the Constitution, Congress can legislate about anything it wants. And even in some cases in which it's (laughs) expressly prohibited by the Constitution, Congress can legislate. So the The real turning point in this regard came in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt, who had run for president on a traditional Democratic Party platform of the Republicans were spending too much and taxing too much, and they're intervening in our lives too much, came into office and immediately proposed sweeping legislation empowering, first of all, himself to regulate new areas of American life. And the holdover Supreme Court struck these laws down. This is what's called the First New Deal. Roosevelt then made public the idea that he was going to propose that there should be several new seats on the Supreme Court, which everybody understood. He was going to be able to appoint people who were going to be more in line with his thinking. That is, who were going to be more apt to say that Congress and the president could do what they wanted to do in the economic realm. And at that point, a wavering justice who had been thinking of changing his position on these questions went ahead and changed his position. And so you have uh, what's called the Second New Deal being approved. And uh, one casualty of this sea change was what's called the non-delegation doctrine, which is the idea that Congress could not delegate legislative authority to the executive branch, but there was a strict distinction among the three branches. One was legislative, one was executive, and one was judicial. Or another way to put that is that the government's policies would be made mainly by Congress. They'd be implemented by the executive and they'd be um, weighed um, as, uh, or the performance of the executive would be weighed as regards its uh, legality or its constitutionality by the courts. Um, instead, what happened was that the court in the second New Deal cases upheld broad delegations of authority to the executive branch. And what was going to come to be commonplace in American governments, both federal and state after that, was that legislatures adopted laws saying, here's our nice cause. We'd like clean air and clean water, for example. You, executive branch, we're going to create a new agency within the executive, and it just should go out and make sure that we have clean air and clean water. So there is going to be very broad discretion in these agencies to uh, adopt policies that would implement the general or that would seek to further the general goals stated by Congress and legislation that created those agencies, such as to ensure that the American people enjoy clean air and clean water. And what that meant essentially was that the non-delegation doctrine was passe. And really, this could be seen as a collapse of federalism, for one thing. I mean, if 
the suddenly if the um, Congress is just going to be able to say, here are three good ideas we'd like, and we're going to have the executive, the federal executive go out and do whatever it thinks is useful in seeking uh, to further these ideas, then you're going to have virtually unlimited authority in the federal executive. So this is where we are today. And the non-delegation doctrine is now seen as more or less passe. We have several agencies, of course, in the federal government that have very broad ambits to enforce a general uh, principle stated by Congress, or at least nominally stated by Congress. And um, the courts say, well, yeah, this is acceptable. In fact, in one uh, opinion, a Supreme Court justice said, you know, as complicated a world as we're in now, obviously there's going to have to be very broad discretion in executive um, officials and the non-delegation doctrine is, is not going to be an obstacle to that. Was there a particular case where that was first argued and, and was it competitive or? <laughs> well, the first, the, those first New Deal cases, actually there were four of them. And uh, basically what happened was that the courts struck down um, all the major first New Deal statutes. And they said, uh, essentially, well, the Interstate Commerce Clause only gives Congress authority to regulate con commerce that's interstate, uh, for example. And they also said, well, we can't have this broad delegation of authority to the executive because the executive is only supposed to be executive, not a policymaker, and so on. Um, and, and as I said, the... The court packing idea, the floating of the idea by President Roosevelt that there should be four new seats on the Supreme Court seems to have been what pushed a wavering justice from uh, the this is unconstitutional camp into the camp of those who were willing to uphold the um, New Deal legislation. But by the time he'd left office, Franklin Roosevelt had appointed eight justices to the Supreme Court. So there was no doubt from that point that the Congress was going to be allowed to delegate extremely broad authority to the executive, more or less to make law. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. There's what's called the Code of Federal Regulation, which is thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of quote-unquote regulations. Really, this is law. It has the force of law. If you go to law school, you'll study it. If you uh, become an attorney, you can devote your entire practice to uh, litigation that has to do with regulations, which are just essentially statutes that Congress didn't make. They're statutes that administrative agencies, theoretically with the authority of the president, but usually without his really knowing what's going on, um, have adopted in the name of Congress. So it, it's pretty distant from the classic eighth grade uh, American civics textbook account of the way the American government is supposed to work. Yeah, it reminds me, um, this the way you answered this is, reminds me of Ron Paul's book back in 2008, where he was explaining the Federal Reserve and, and he says, well, where do they get the, the money to, um, you know, to to stimulate the economy, lower interest rates? And he says, they just write a check on themselves, right? And he says, and if you think that sounds fishy, then you understand it just fine. And and it's kind of the same, you know, uh, I'm not a constitutional scholar or a lawyer, but I read the Constitution and it says Congress 
shall have the power to legislate, or the legislative power shall be invested in Congress. That seems pretty simple. I mean, were the Republicans screaming about this when it, when it was first uh, proposed that we give it to the executive? Well, <laughs> they were. Uh, however, you know, the mythology of American history includes that um, Franklin Roosevelt's predecessor is supposed to have been this stick in the mud, laissez-faire advocate who was keeping things like this from being done. And actually, Herbert Hoover was just as much of a progressive as Franklin Roosevelt. So uh, besides that, the, the Republicans were generally blamed by by the public for the depression's beginning. And that meant that whatever complaints they were making weren't being heard. And the, the Democratic Party, in other words, was going to have complete control of ultimately of all three branches. I would argue that they, they had control of the Supreme Court until last year. I mean, from 1937 until last year, the, the liberals controlled the Supreme Court. So the idea that this kind of departure was legitimate is fundamental to um, the structure of our constitutional system nowadays. And it certainly is, I'd say, at variance with the notion that, well, laws should be made by people who are elected to make laws. That's, that's not the way most American law is made. Most of it is made either by bureaucrats in the administrative agencies adopting these quote-unquote regulations or by judges who put their own gloss on statutes and regulations and constitutional provisions. <laughs> now, I know there's some limits on this, even not the constitutional ones, which is what you just said, but I think when they come up with some new regulations, they have to submit them to some kind of scrutiny. Do, can you explain that for the listeners? Well, there's what's called the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA. And according to the APA, when a new, um, right before a new regulation becomes law, it uh, has to be publicized for a certain amount of time. Public commentary has to be taken. And then there has to be consideration, in theory, there has to be consideration of the public commentary, and then it can go into effect. So, um, in general, administrative agencies can't just say, okay, this is a new regulation and we're, we're promulgating that today. They're, they have to go through these steps so that in theory, whatever flaws might be obvious to the public or to interested experts uh, can be taken into account before the final version actually is promulgated. So the agency writes up a bunch of rules. They submit them for public consideration. Yes. And then the agency decides whether any concerns of the public are valid. Yes. Yeah. What could go wrong? Well, in general, what that'll lead to is more and more authority for the agency, of course, predictably. And that's what's happened. So I'm sure that people who are listening to this can think of all kinds of administrative, uh, you know, federal regulatory problems um, that, that they've encountered or they've heard about. And um, this is... This is a kind of question that has been very controversial. There, there are some of the administrative agencies that are frequently in the news and have been for decades. It's that time of the year again when we're all looking for something special to give friends and loved ones for the holidays. Unfortunately, 
The government and its bank have worked especially hard this year at doing what they do best, make things more expensive for the rest of us. Well, I have great news. You can get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas. That's my gift to you in appreciation for listening. But that's not all. I've also made the book available as a paperback at an incredibly low price, so you can get a few copies to give as gifts. It makes a great stocking stuffer. And don't worry, this is not some preachy libertarian treatise. It's full of fun and even includes a special Christmas beverage recipe. Get more information and your free ebook at antistatechristmas.com. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand. And Does Congress have any recourse? Let's just say the agency writes the laws. They determine themselves that whatever public concerns are, are don't override, you know, the, the necessity for these regulations. Does Congress have recourse? Can they pass something that says well, this this is going to be struck down? Well, some some of the administrative agencies' rules can be considered by Congress before they go into effect. It depends on the legislation that has authorized the agency to promulgate regulations. So if Congress reserved this authority to itself, then in some instances there, there is a kind of congressional power of veto, which you might think sounds pretty distant from the constitutional system. And the answer is, well, yeah, now we're compounding distance from the constitutional system. But uh, And of course, if it wants to, Congress can flat out legislate changes to regulations. It also can by its control of the purse, um, tell administrative agencies that it wants changes. So that sometimes happens too. But of course, what we've got in Washington is the famous iron triangle. You have particular committees that have cognizance of particular administrative agencies' activity, and you have lobbyists who are interested in those particular administrative agencies' activity and you have the agencies themselves, which are, of course, interested in what goes on in Congress with relation to their activity. Now, in general, what the lobbyists, the, uh, the regulators, and the people who are in control of the committees with cognizance of them have in common is they all want active agencies. If you were a congressman who you know, didn't like, say, the Environmental Protection Agency's behavior over a long period of time, Chances are when you went into Congress, you would not ask your, uh, your party leader in your house to please put you on the committee that had charge of this agency you didn't like. So it ends up being advocates of the agencies that are charged with oversight of those agencies. It's, you know, it's going to be people who are interested in the military who are on the defense committee. It's going to be people who are interested. It's going to be lawyers who are on the judiciary committee. It's, you know, so... Uh, and you'd think maybe it would be a better, maybe there'd be better outcomes from the point of view of somebody who was interested in laissez-faire if we just had random assignment of people to these committees. I guess you want some share of lawyers on the Judiciary Committee. You wouldn't want to have a, a lawyer-free um, party contingent on the Judiciary Committee, I suppose. But in general, I think um, 
it would be nice if you had people who weren't invested in these, at least emotionally invested, maybe even politically invested in these committees being charged with oversight of. Another thing that tends to happen, of course, is that the people who work on the staffs of the congressmen who are on those committees end up cycling out into the um, the industries that are that are regulated by the by the agencies the committees oversee. So there's just a constant kind of um, whirlwind of feeding on itself. This beast in Washington has going. This is not an original observation with me either. This has been long noted by people both on the left and on the right in regard to the way the administrative agencies have what's called administrative capture of the legislative process. Well, and, you know, getting back to the original point, um, you know, we're already out there talking about, well, what can we do once you light a match to the Constitution? But basically, you have an executive that can make laws by decree rather than the laws being made by an elected legislature and also the power to enforce those laws. Isn't that the definition of a dictator? I mean, I'm sure I read that somewhere. But you know what else is really another sweet element of this is let's say that you're the, if you're the president and you're unhappy with the committee, I mean, with the administrative agency, most of the people who work for the agency aren't answerable to you. So they're, they're already insulated from executive oversight by the fact that they're career bureaucrats. But if you found out, for example, that, uh, um, I don't know, somebody, who, if you were the president, you found out somebody who worked for the IRS was shepherding uh, your fellow party members' tax information to a journalist, hypothetically, you couldn't <laughs> remove her from office, right? There'd be nothing you could do about that. So this 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 is true through the whole bureaucracy. In general, these people can't be removed by elected official, elected officials. So um, it's an unhappy it's an unhappy structure. I think it's really at variance with our general idea of the way that the governments ought to work. And were there precedents for the executive branch legislating in this way, regulating before the New Deal, or no? Well, you you had a couple of small administrative agencies that were created in the at the end of the second third or the beginning of the final third of the 19th century, uh, the Interstate Commerce Commission, for example. But they were much smaller and they did they, they had cognizance of far less of American life than these we have now. Um, so, for example, you were interested in the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, it's currently uh, about to be given oversight of a of a I, what I'd say is a highly tangentially related activity that the president seems to want OSHA to be in charge of. And there's, of course, not any shouting about that from people within OSHA. They're not saying, oh, no, we don't want our ambit expanded. Of course they aren't. And people on the oversight committees aren't going to say, oh, no, OSHA shouldn't be in charge of this. They're going to say, yeah, OSHA, sure, that's our baby. So um, unfortunately, the only people who have an interest in not having this happen are the people who don't have any authority, common citizenry. We can't do anything about it, but it might be nice from our point of view if somebody we could vote down for 
not doing something to prevent bad behavior or somebody we could vote out because we didn't like a new policy direction that the agencies were going um, had a role in any of it. They generally don't. So I bet you Biden today or Trump three years ago or Obama three years before that, 90% of these um, new regulations that are promulgated by administrative agencies, I'm sure they have never seen. So, okay. And, and what the other thing that we hear constantly, no matter who's in the White House, especially yeah. uh, when the previous president was there, oh my gosh, our democracy. Now, we have <laughs> plenty of reasons to have a problem with that term. Yes, there is democratic, there is democracy in our system, but we don't have a democracy. In fact, most of the Republican system, after you elect the House of Representatives is supposed to be set up to protect us from the democracy. But if you do care about democracy, uh, wouldn't you want any laws governing your behavior to be by your elected representatives in co uh, Congress, not just by the decree of the executive? Or, or how did we get to the point where we just elect a president and then whatever that person says goes? Well, when it comes to these administrative agencies, I think people generally, people who've been responsible for the creation of each of them have decided when it comes to my pet cause, I am more interested in having assurance that my pet cause will be forwarded by some big section of the federal government than I am in having a Republican government. So if we, if we have to have, in other words, um, an agency over which voters really don't have any control at all to uh, go out and make sure we have clean air and clean water. Okay, well, that's better than not having clean air and clean water. It's better than not having policies I like be, be furthered by the Congress. So yeah, over time, uh, a lot of people seem to have decided, and this is especially true among the most elite members of society, uh, they've decided I prefer having a guarantee that my preferred policies are going to be advanced to having a Republican government of the kind we were all taught we were supposed to have in the eighth grade, right? That, that's just not that important. In other words, the reason why we don't have the Republican government we were taught we were going to have in the eighth grade is because over time, people didn't want it. They just right. wanted something else. They'd, they'd rather have their own, you know, they'd rather have war whenever it seemed like a, a, a nice idea to them than have the Congress be responsible for deciding there'd be a war. So they they supported having the president be able to go out and have war without asking the Congress. Or even if, in one recent case, even if one House of Congress voted, no, don't have this war. So, yeah, that's that's the issue, I think. Yeah, and I, I think you make a good point. Um, everybody's got something where they, you know, I don't mind a dictator imposing this. Um, and I guess when you talk about OSHA and they made some rule that says everybody on a construction site's got to wear a, a hard hat, who's going to object to that? It's like, well, yeah, thanks. We, we're already doing that. And everybody who's welding's got to um, wear safety goggles. And then all of a sudden they say, well, everybody on that site's got to have this vaccine that we just came out with eight months ago. And everybody starts screaming and it's like, yeah, well, you, you know, that boat already sailed, you know, when you didn't object to the hard hat, um, right. you know, the, the vaccine was right behind it. Is there anywhere that they can't go in your estimation? 
Well, as we have been seeing for the last many months now, if if a large enough share of the people who who are in the executive are willing to support what the administrative agencies are doing, then the administrative agencies are pretty much insulated, especially if the if the executive and the Congress are controlled by the same party, there's just not going to be any kind of critical commentary on that at all. So I think over time, we're just kind of doomed to have bigger and bigger, more and more irresponsible government. I mean, irresponsible in the literal sense of not responsible to anybody. So um, this is all lamentable as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of these agencies, I think, do more harm than good. But getting rid of them is virtually impossible. Well, great. Let's talk about something happier then. Um, <laughs> there is a new Gutsman book coming out. Uh, the only bad thing about Gutsman books is when I finish them, I get a little let down because there's, <laughs> there's not another one to read. But this one's going to be called The Jeffersonians. What's it about and when's it coming out? Well, this one took longer to write than any of the ones I've written before. It's about the three, okay, twice in American history, we've had three consecutive two-term presidents. One was Clinton, W., and Obama. The other one was Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. So Clinton, W., and Obama were kind of moderately centrist Democrat, a neocon Republican, and a left-wing Democrat, right? So what do they have in common? Well, uh, virtually nothing. On the other hand, any two of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe would have been the two best friends who've ever been president. And they were joined at the hip when it came to their programs. So when Jefferson gave his first inaugural address, which is one of, I don't know, three or four inaugural addresses in American history that are actually worth reading, he was laying out what would be the program. He didn't know it, but he was laying out what would be the program of the following six presidential terms, right? So he, Madison and Monroe had essentially the same agenda. And what that meant was, they implemented the entire thing. Some of it was a huge success. Some of it was such an awful debacle that a foreign army burned down the White House, the Capitol, the War Department, State Department, the, the Treasury, the Library of Congress. And somehow there's, although Jefferson has always been one of historians' favorite topics, Madison has been the subject of a lot of investigation over about the last 30 years. And Monroe is an interesting character. There's never been a book on this subject. So this is going to be the first account of their administrations. And when you leave it, you'll have an idea why, uh, why Henry Adams thought Albert Gallatin was a brilliant fellow and uh, how it was that uh, we ended up with a Navy secretary who virtually every day was totally incapacitated by alcohol by noon. Um, <laughs> And how it was that a foreign army came to burn down the White House. Um, besides which, uh, Francis Scott Key uh, ends up writing a tune about some military event he watches in Baltimore <laughs> Harbor. So we have a little bit about that, too. Anyway, that's what it's about. And uh, I venture that even if you think you know, you'll, you know a lot about this period, you're going to find a lot you don't know in my book. One, one interesting thing is Albert Gallatin. Um, was an actual nobleman. He was an immigrant from Switzerland who came here just because he decided, 
yeah, I don't want to be in Switzerland. I think I'll go to North America, which is crazy. His, his father's family name was Galatini. They were from Italy and they were among the founders of Geneva. And actually five of his ancestors, I don't mean uncles, aunts, I mean, actual ancestors had been um, chief executive of Geneva. And he, his mother was a Durosi, which means she was from French nobility. And he literally just decides with a friend of his, we should go to America. Why? They didn't say. They just decided they wanted to come to America. So uh, he's a he's the one example I've ever found of disproof of the old uh, historian's adage: "Dukes don't emigrate." Well, dukes don't emigrate, but Albert Gallatin came to North America, so he ends up being he ends up being the fellow, among other things, who sets out the plan for extinguishing the federal debt. And you, people who are listening to this may have heard that Andrew Jackson paid off the federal debt. Well, actually, Gallatin established the schedule for paying off the debt, and Jackson just happened to be in office when the day came, and they paid off the debt on Gallatin's schedule. He was uh, he was Treasury Secretary for 14 years plus. Well, and I already know something I didn't know. So, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, it's a it's an interesting topic. It's got uh, it's got wars with uh, North African Muslims who are enslaving American soldiers. I mean, sailors. It's got uh, crazy intrigues. It's got very negative account of Mrs. Madison, who for some reason has a very positive reputation. I don't like her at all. Um, and a lot of other fun stuff. So it was an interesting subject. I found the reason why there hasn't been a book on this subject is that it really is three books worth of work to master the Jefferson Madison Monroe administrations. Um, but I think people will think it's interesting. That's That's what I'm hoping for. Well, I'm looking forward to it myself. When does it come out? Sometime in the middle of next year. We don't have a date yet. Okay. But I have turned in the manuscript. We've got blurbs from cool people, and the publisher is happy about the book. So uh, fingers crossed. And I, I, I should tell the listeners that uh, I've enjoyed your previous books. And what I, I most enjoyed about them is they tell the cold, hard truth, even if it's uh, somebody you might have some affection for. Uh, when there's right. flaws to be told, the the flaws are 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 revealed, and they're they're still engaging. It's not at all uh, dry. I I just remember reading your account of uh, Madison's attempts to get that congressional veto over state laws, and I mean, on on one hand, it it was almost like it was written by a a comedy movie scriptwriter because it was funny that he just kept right. bringing it up and it kept being shot down but I think you were just reporting the facts there. Yeah, and actually you get to the last week of the Philadelphia convention he brings it up again and by that point people are so sick of it that the vote is 10 states against none for even Virginia voted no last time. So people were just like James enough already with this. And then he uh, he went and wrote a long report to his friend Jefferson who was off in France describing the Philadelphia convention and he he called this federal veto over state laws my favorite proposal. Yeah, nobody else liked it. <laughs> okay, well, hey, Kevin, I appreciate your time. Um, we'll definitely put a link to your website on our show notes page. And um, we're going to look forward to your new book. And I'm going to hold out hope that someday we're going to repeal the New Deal, the root and branch, although I suspect you're probably right. Not going to happen anytime soon. 
But thanks very much for, for being with me today. You're welcome. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget to get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas, at antistatechristmas.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.